We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are here live in Nashville, Tennessee, and it is my great honor to have my first guests of the day. They are the executive director of the USCF, Carol Meyer, and the president of the U.S. Chess Board, amongst other titles, Mike Halfpower. Thanks for joining us, Carol and Mike. Good to be here. So you guys, I'm sure, are having a hectic weekend. There's about, what is it, 2,300 kids here, Carol? Just about. So 2,300 students enthusiastically playing chess and swinging from the chandeliers in between the rounds. So we're, uh, we're all having a good time here. And how's everything running so far? You know, I think you, you always have the early uh, event um, kinks to iron out, but we've got those ironed out and things are running really smoothly. Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's what, you know, the first round is always a round of adjustment, especially with a lot of new players in a tournament. And, you know, we hold these tournaments all across the country. And we do that specifically so that we can attract new members to the Federation, have new, you know, new people get a chance to see what a national tournament is like. So there's quite a few players that are here. That this is their, their – some of them, it's their first tournament. Right. Let alone first national championship. So this, there's a big adjustment, not only for the kids, but also for the parents, and there's a big wow factor. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive when you walk into that room and you see, you know, 1,900 chessboards laid out, you know, and the room is the size of two football fields. And that, that's biggest anything, you know, because most kids have only seen something the size of this small room here about, uh, you know, and, and they're they're just not used to seeing something that that's that's that large and that humongous from their perspective is just – it's just mind-boggling for them. Yeah, it's a long way from the elementary school gyms and the church halls that, that most chess tournaments take place in. Absolutely. And I'm always amazed seeing the, the look of 
abject fear in parents as they sit there waiting for their kids' games to end, sitting in the hall, and they just you can just see the tension in their face, just wanting their wanting their kids to walk out with a smile. And especially now, since I have kids myself, I, I get that perspective and get how much scarier it is to be an, a parent than to just be playing and just go think about the chess game. Uh, so I want to get into your guys' background a little bit. Carol, you recently became the president, I mean, excuse me, the executive director of the USCF late last year. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background prior to that? Sure. Um, I've, I've been a nonprofit manager almost my entire career. And so I, I specialize in running or, organizations that are nonprofits. Um, I do not come from a chess background. Um, in fact, I've never played a competitive game, only very casual games and, and long ago. Um, but prior to coming to U.S. Chess, I ran a, a healthcare association, regional healthcare association for the hospice industry. And prior to that, I ran a NASA and NOAA funded um, Earth Science Data and Technology Project for over a decade, and um, you know we, we were the, the the issues are different, but the the themes span across um, organizations and and industries. You know, or nonprofit organizations face similar challenges regardless of the the industry you're in. So, so what was your first thought when you saw the opening for the U.S. Chess Federation Executive yeah, Director. It, it came to me by way Little of... Little did she know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's my reaction now, Nike. Um, it, a friend forwarded me the opportunity, and I, I was intrigued because it was different than anything I had ever considered doing. Um, you know, my, my kids are grown, and, and so... Um, I've I've been involved with youth activities as a parent, as a as a coach, um, as a volunteer leader, but never having run a a, a youth facing organization. Albeit that's not all we are. That seems to be much of what we are today, and um, it, you know it, it it was appealing for for that reason because it it was different and it and it sounded more fun than working for industry, if you will. And um, so I I decided to apply. Okay, and we'll we'll pick that up, and I'd like to hear how the job has uh, how the job has met or been different from your expectations. But Mike, uh, you're the president of the U.S. Chess Board, so you were instrumental in hiring Carol, correct, or at least had a hand in it. Yes. So yeah, the executive board had put out, you know, an advertisement about six months in advance, in order to you know solicit you know qualified candidates, and we received you know well over 125 different packets and you know honestly 90 percent you could just instantly set off to the side because well i play chess i could be the the president or the executive director Uh, but there were you know some 25 to 30 candidates that we felt were you know they they deserve a an an oral interview uh, you know by phone and so we reached out and did those and then called the field down to i guess it was five or six and then had in-person interviews last year at the U.S. Open when we were near my hometown in Norfolk, Virginia. Okay, and what was it about Carol that that you found appealing as a candidate? Well, all of the candidates had strengths, but in particular, what we were looking for was to kind of break the mold in terms of uh, uh, what had been our CEO position in the past. And we were really, really strong and looking for people that were very, very deep into nonprofit organization experience. And quite frankly, the the previous executive director, Gene Hoffman, um, knew that 
she had evolved the organization to a point, and then with it transitioning from um, a 501c4 organization into a 501c3 nonprofit, that it it deserved someone who had a background in that to be the lead of the organization. Um, so what's the difference between the two? Well, one's, I mean, literally the one, you get all the tax contributions that, you know, people can make and you can, and I can take the tax, you know, the tax breaks because I make those contributions. Okay. So which one? Yeah. Fundamentally, a C4 is a membership organization. It's an IRS designation, but it's not a charitable organization. A 501c3 is a charitable organization. And as Mike said, um, you know, tax deductions for donations can be taken by the individual making that contribution. But more importantly, I think when U.S. Chess made that transition, its mission changed and its Mm -hmm. mission now has an educational purpose. So if you listen and you haven't given, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And so, Carol, how is the transition shaping up so far? In terms of organization or in terms of my transition? Well, both. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I, I spend every day learning. I, I learn more than one thing every day. And, and so that I imagine that will be an ongoing process for me during my tenure um, with U.S. Chess. And, you know, we make mistakes and we own them and we fix them and we, we move on. And, you know, my, my goal is to help move this organization forward so that it's sustainable in a good way that meets the, the many priorities that the board board has set. Um, you know, changing an organization is a slow process. It's, it's not just about saying, you know, ruling by fiat that we are going to be X when we've been Y um, for, for all of time. Um, so we're, we're talking about things like culture um, change and programmatic additions and um, retraining staff and adding different kinds of staff. And so this is a, this is a process. Um, I, I wish I had a magic wand. Um, I don't. Um, I also wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. Um, and what, what my approach has been is to listen to as many people as possible and try to work with the board to synthesize a path that we can move this organization forward. Okay. And so you mentioned that you've had a lot of, uh, learning to do as you go. So, what, how does that learning tape shape, take shape? Do you find yourself reading books or just reaching out to people like Mike on the board? Or how do you learn the lay of the land? Yeah, so, so my focus is really not about learning chess. Um, mm-hmm. It's about learning chess culture and learning about relationships that exist within our, our community, um, learning who has um, what contributions to make. Um, it, it's really, I think this is really a relationship business. And that's both with our individual members and our affiliates, as well as partners that we have, some of whom are here, you know, at the elementary nationals, um, here as exhibitors. Um, We have a number of those. It it really is about building those relationships. Okay. And so, Mike, and you've got a background in, a long background in scholastic chess, uh, and you're also... um, active in the for-profit world. You, uh, I hear that you're an astronaut for one thing. <laughs> uh, and work in, I've worked in the military and do some consulting for the military. So how did you get into the chess world, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm a 27-year veteran of the U.S. Army, retired as a colonel in 2005. Um, and was you know, the only job I ever knew was being in the Army. And the Army teaches a lot of organizational skills to officers, especially as you become more senior 
uh, they send you to quite a bit of you know senior management schooling. I I, I was fortunate enough to have a fellowship at Harvard uh, to learn quite a bit about management. But more importantly for me, I, I learned chess just out of curiosity as a kid. I mean, a couple of friends and I we saw the Bobby Fischer match on TV when we were in you know elementary school and. Hey, those are, that looks neat. So that's what you know. That's what kind of turned us on. And so, one of us convinced our mom to buy a book at the bookstore, and we kind of taught ourselves. You know, this is here's the pawn, and now the pawn has moved. And so we kind of learned chess that way, and then we just kept playing. But when I became married and had children, I was teaching my kids, and so I was a chess parent for a good five years, um, and then. I guess because of my tendency to to like things to be very organized and very rudiment, you know, very regimented, and because of my military background, I was pointing out things to tournament directors at tournaments my kids were going to, and they said, you know, you got some good ideas. Maybe you should think about yeah. being a tournament director. And I'm not one to say no to a challenge. Um, so that's what got me started. Can and, can you think of any examples of things that you saw that weren't being uh, done? Oh, I mean, just things like I mean, I was watching, I was watching through the you know through the glass door in this cat, like you said, the tournament was being played in a cafeteria at an right. elementary school. <laughs> yeah, and I'm watching through the glass wall because I can't go in the room. I'm a parent, um, and I see this one kid gets up and goes to the bathroom, and another kid reaches behind and changes the clock. Right, you know, so I'm like. What is going on here? <laughs> and so I tell the tournament director, hey, I saw that kid go to the bathroom and his opponent reached and changed the clock, you know. And, and this was not your kid's game, No, right? not my yeah. kid's game. I just was – and it was close to the window. I'm like, how can the kid, you know. But um, so, you know, I just pointed that out. But that's what got me started. And then I was able to, you know, latch on to some very influential and – um very skilled tournament directors like Mike Atkins and Ernest Schlick and Frank Guadalupe and and people with you know very deep chess backgrounds because I soon got involved in the scholastic committee on the council and you know Jay Stallings was who's sitting here in the room with us today Jay was kind of one of my mentors in in bringing me up through the scholastic community and how to do the you know ruling I mean how to make the regulations be what they are and and so forth. And then I became, you know, one of the co-chairs of the Scholastic Council and then ran for the executive board. And here I am. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I know that everyone is glad to have you on board. So um. I, I, sometimes I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're not making any enemies, you're definitely not doing anything right. So <laughs> you've got, got to find the right balance. Um, so, Carol, what has surprised you the most uh, from a personal standpoint in terms of getting acclimated as a executive director? Yeah, I think what I wasn't Careful. Fully, Careful. yeah, <laughs> fully prepared for is the um, some of the, the how strong the the culture is and and the um, you know sometimes the adults not always behaving the way we would expect adults to behave. Yes. Um, there, there there seems to be a lot of that, and and I think it's linked to the passion that people have for the game and for their their kids and wanting to see them come along in in, in the the game. Um, so I, I I knew that there was an archetype of a chess personality. Yeah, I mean everybody has that sort of framework, but um, you know I I think it I found that to be true in some cases. <laughs> um, but it but it's good, and I think the passion is what drives the organization and what's 
what has made us successful over over the the long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, people really are passionate about the game, and I mean, and even here at the uh, you know at this event, we have Grandmaster Arena Crush and Grandmaster Robert Hess. And both of whom, not only just great chess players, but just excellent role models yeah, for the younger generation. Yeah, you know? yeah. I've uh, been. Pr- I was privileged to have uh, Robert Hess on Perpetual Chess, and he was a really, really good guest. And his passion came through. And he's one of my favorite chess announcers as well. And Irina is someone I've been wanting to interview for a long time. So I, I've known her a little bit in more casual circles. But you can't really grill people about their careers when you're like hanging out with friends and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to getting her in the hot seat <laughs> later today. But so getting back to the mission of uh, the organization and uh, how your, your work is, is shaping up, we have a question from Jennifer Valens, a supporter of the podcast. Um, she says, uh, first, thank you for taking on the post of executive director. This is for you, Carol, and congratulations. I understand you have a background and have been successful in fundraising for nonprofits. Can you tell us what plans are in place for seeking grant funding for U.S. Chess? So U- U.S. Chess is in a position to hire a development director, um, our fundraising staff position, later this year. Um, is that a new position? That would be a new position. And... Actually, I have the job description here with me this week. Um, so we're not just talking about grants. I mean, we are talking about a comprehensive development program, which would include, you know, individual giving at across many levels of, of gifts. We would be looking at um, raising money from foundations, private foundations. We'd be looking at sponsorships. We'd be looking at in-kind contributions. We'd be looking at um, legacy gifts, you know, that people make to organizations when they, when they pass on. Um, So the framework for that has not been set up. Um, The development director in concert with myself and and with the board and with the U.S. Chess Development Committee will be working to set that framework. Um, There's some other things, though, that we're working on to increase the chance that that person will have success when when they do come on board. And a lot of what I've been spending my time on since I joined U.S. Chess is, frankly, working on infrastructure and working toward rebuilding some of the infrastructure that we have that's that's aging um that's cranky um and and needs to be either evolved or replaced and that is a a long-term project probably another two years before we can breathe easier um but those building blocks like being able to manage prospects and being able to track them properly and communicate properly we don't have a good capability in-house at this time to do that kind of work. So again, we, we've got things that are um, proceeding on parallel tracks, mm-hmm. um, but there's a lot of interdependencies that aren't all that visible to our members or the outside world because it's we're really down in the weeds trying to uh, build that backbone of the organization that, that has to be built. And, and I, would, I would add that each year, it's sort of traditional in this executive board that we use our early winter or January-ish executive board meeting as a strategic planning session. And that's what we did when we did it in January. And one of the objectives and goals that we talked about considerably was how do we uh, improve 
and set the foundation in place to conduct, you know, charitable organization kinds of work, whether that be, uh, you know, bringing in money to support uh, underprivileged youths, funding research perhaps uh, in in, in areas like Alzheimer's and how learning chess may help stem the tide of some of those horrific diseases that too many of us are aware of. But lots of ideas, and we tried to stay out of the weeds, as Carol said, from a standpoint of thinking up very specific initiatives as opposed to let's let's lay the soil out, fertilize the soil so that we can throw the seeds in it and the seeds have a chance to really grow and and, and make you know and, and have and, and bear good fruit for the organization but we we did we did a lot of that in January and we're going to have a sort of a follow-up session at our next executive board meeting here in here actually next weekend in Louisville Kentucky okay so not at the point of approaching any companies or anything like that at this point so in a in a comprehensive fashion the answer to that is no but we're approaching companies and donors all the time for specific needs or initiatives that kind of come up in in the moment and so um you know we're building relationships one example um the alzheimer's association is coming to the u.s open this summer um there's a lot of interest in cognitive games and what that can do to either delay the onset of um things like alzheimer's disease you know chess being one of those games that is a natural partnership for us and and they're coming to do a seminar at at our us open on brain health and and aging and and so it's it's we're not asking them for money but we're we're building relationships so that we can find those um common ground um activities or perhaps even research study that might you know, catapult us to something really, really great in the future. And, and, and it's all right now about laying those building blocks or the foundation for a, a future. And it's, it's when you're seeking charitable contributions from an organization, it's not just going knock on someone's door. Hey, can you give me a buck? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you have to put, you have to put some forethought into it and, you have to consider things like what is the mission of that particular organization? How does our mission interface with and overlap with that organization's mission? What's the likelihood that that organization may support us? What are the themes and messages we want to carry into that boardroom to talk to that you know chief executive officer, chief financial officer, or leader in that organization that would um, you know strike a tone with them? that really rings true and that they feel that their dollars are going to something that's valued because the money they give, they want to see that there's, there's really some, there's some payoff at the other end from a standpoint of, you know, you know, of improve, you know, com- improving the community, improving a certain group of people or just forwarding their own organization's objectives, regardless of, you know, the, the objectives of chess, because they're putting up the money and we do have corporate donors already you know, companies like Two Sigma, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, and others have been routinely given money every year to support uh, the, the College Final Four of chess, uh, the, the, the uniforms and jackets that our world youth players wear to international competitions. So we've had quite a bit. And we also have some very, very strong 
you know, private donors as well. And, and, and you want to create opportunities across the board for members to give, perhaps in a membership giving campaign during the holiday season, like lots of organizations do, and better give throughout the year, uh, and, and then to have corporate organizations that want to come and seek you out because they understand that your mission is similar to theirs. And, and, and doing that is, 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 a, is a quite a challenge. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine so. And but so, by the way, you you guys mentioned earlier that you were transitioning from primarily being uh, membership finance based first uh, donation based. So, uh, what governed the decision to make that transition? I would say that the organization, I think it was just evolutionary in nature, because um, at that time the U.S. Chess Trust was the charitable arm of the U.S. Chess Federation, and specifically some of the executive board members that, you know, at that time, Alan Priest is, was a big one, had a big influence in that, but, and, and Alan is a, you know, he's a certified public accountant, so Alan could foresee the benefits for the organization of going that route uh, in transitioning the organization itself from 501c4 to 501c3 status. But it was just the idea of opening up additional avenues wherein the people who contributed could then benefit by the tax break from that, you know, from them providing their their contributions. And I think we see it bearing out in what the executive board has set as priorities for the organization. And, you know, U.S. Chess throughout its history has really been focused on um, rated tournament play. That has been the the thing that's been consistent in our wheelhouse throughout all of, all of time. But I think in some ways that limits the potential of our organization to be exclusively focused on that. We will remain committed to rated tournament play for, I think, forever. But we also recognize that there's a chess-playing public that we don't speak to and and that we we'd like to capture them as part of our chess playing community what that means i don't know but we we need to find ways to grow um the chess playing population whether they play in a tournament or not we need to um, help educate on the the understood benefits of chess whether it's in the youth ranks or among older adults um personally having come from a um, healthcare, end of life healthcare organization just prior to this, one of the things I learned very um, uh, soon after arriving in, in my role that there was that um, older adults, w- one of the things that doesn't get talked about is that they, they suffer from isolation. Well, chess can be a social tool to link older adults, um, whether it's through senior centers or in residential communities where that serve older, older adults, that, that it's, that it becomes a way to combat isolation. Um, not to mention that it may have some benefit for, for brain health. Um, and, and so I don't hear a lot of people talking about those things because it doesn't involve ratings. And I, and I think we should be talking and will be talking about those as opportunities for us chess. Yeah. Uh, speaking of 
chess having a much broader reach than just competitive chess. John John Barth, excuse me, I am John Bartholomew, who's become you know quite popular on YouTube with uh, instructional videos. And uh, when he travels, he does meetups sometimes where he'll just reach out and say, "Anyone who's been watching my videos, come on out." And he alluded on Twitter, I think it was, to doing a meeting where a hundred people, hundred people who had seen his videos, and I can't even remember where it was, but it wasn't like a huge population center in this case, came to to his gathering and out of the hundred i think it was one who had played a tournament before so there's there's just so much opportunity and with with the push that chess.com and other organizations are making into esports i think it's it's great to not feel like chess has to be this strictly competitive endeavor because even people like me who grew up going to nationals and competing in nationals and now does some coaching in nationals and stuff like that but as you get older, your priorities change and you aren't necessarily looking to lock horns with whatever limited free time you have with someone. So um, so in that respect, you still want to be involved in chess and supporting chess and, you know, have as, a, as big a tent as possible. So I, I do think it's a good idea. Um, but I want to also pivot to world chess. So obviously here in the United States, we're super excited that Fabiano Caruana, who's just an amazing representative uh, for chess... Uh, will be competing with Magnus later this year. So I was curious how that hits the USCF. Like when it's an American player who suddenly emerges from the candidates to play, Does the do you guys have responsibilities in conjunction with that? Or are you just fans like the rest of us? Well, I would say most importantly, we don't want to impose at all on what that player would like to do. Uh, if the player you know, asks for assistance, we can we can work with others to bring kinds of assistance to help the player, but I mean we want that player to better to craft their preparation and attendance at the World Championship in the way that they feel comfortable doing it, and not try to impose or force something upon them or say hey take this that's all we can do and leave it you know we're not going to do that. Um, we have had communications with other organizations as well as with Fabio's own management about you know ways that we may be able to assist, and those discussions are are, are still ongoing. But uh, but it, it's 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 foremost in our in our thought that that we want him to be able to do well. We want him to be able to prepare the way he wants to prepare, and we definitely do not want to impose in any way, shape, or form on his preparation so that. You know he is he's free to think and free to do what he really needs to do to get ready for that event. Makes sense. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's exciting. So we'll uh, yeah, we're all. Yeah, I mean, just I I can remember being seven eight years old watching on TV and black and white TV the commentary of the Fisher game and just being fascinated by what I was seeing as a kid. And now it's going to happen again. Yeah, and it's going to happen for a whole new generation of kids. Um. And it's going to be a media experience like, like, like is rarely seen in in chess, and I mean it's going to it it there it's got huge potential to start another you know another bow wave, and so we've been at all three of our national championships for the Scholastics so far this year. I mean we we've gone out of our way to to really uh, you know put together a. A program and and a message that we hope Fabio gets, and we know he is because we've seen that what on Facebook, I think, Carol. But I mean, we've had the you know at the, at the junior highs, at the high schools, and at this tournament here, we have had all the kids come to the center of the room and one, two, three, everybody yell Fabio, and we take a picture and everybody's waving. And but I mean, 
this chess playing community is definitely behind what you know where he's where he's going. And and I think the kids are excited because they know that he too played in these events when he was younger, and and you know that that is a role model close to home that they didn't always have. So I, I think there's a lot of excitement. And, and I, I personally saw him playing in tournaments when he was you know single digit in age, and I was a tournament director. And I remember having to go get the phone books for him to sit on. <laughs> right. Because yeah. he was so small. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. But I need two yellow Norfolk phone books. <laughs> you know, they're about three inches thick a piece. And for him to sit on to be high enough to see in the table pr- cr- properly. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, uh, he's come a long way. On, uh, in the Facebook chess teacher thread, people started just sharing stories of because uh, Fabiano was a fixture in the New York chess scene. And I lived in New York and, uh, late 90s and early 2000s when he when he was growing up so everyone's showing their games you know ho- everyone's hoping they played him when he was seven and maybe one before you know, <laughs> because that's basically the only chance you're gonna get um and just just telling stories about like when when they knew he was special and and stuff stuff like that so yeah it, it's it's really exciting and uh definitely looking forward to it so we do have one topic that uh is not as uh uplifting um so for listeners who who aren't who may not have heard this backstory? We're here at the elementary nationals, K through sixth grade. Uh, at the junior high nationals, there was um, an allegation of uh, cheating by um, by one of the teams. Basically, it was suggested that they manipulated the ratings so that they were able that this co- this team's coach manipulated the ratings so that they were able to um, play in a section in which the kids didn't belong, and then they had a, a, a standout result in the section and ended up winning the nationals. Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of discussion online about this controversy, about w- what can be done, and um, some grumbling about the way it's been handled so far. So uh, we have a question from, that's just a prelude uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the backstory. If you Google it, you can find more information. But those are the broad brushstrokes. Basically, there was a tournament leading up to the nationals that may or may not have occurred. Um, the the results were uh, basically led to a lot of rating points being lost and these kids being able to play in a section that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. So we don't know for sure if this tournament leading up to the Nationals was legitimate. So anyway, big prologue to the question from Chris Wayne Scott, which is what rule changes would you like to see in order to both avoid a situation like the recent junior high Nationals or if it can't be avoided, at least be able to deal with it immediately when it surfaces? Yeah, that's a great question, and I appreciate that question. Uh, in particular, I'll be very honest, we're not going to comment on that specific case mm-hmm. because we are anticipating that there will be an ethics complaint that's going to get filed, and the executive board is in position at, to- at, a, at a part in the appeals process where the, bo- where the matter could come to the executive board. So we're not going to discuss it publicly in any way, shape, or form. But what I will tell you is that this is a learning organization. And as an example – to when when we saw the potential consequences, we s- sat back and developed a, a very prototype, uh, proto. It's a very infant, I guess, what I would call it, algorithm that is looking at the peak rating supplement ratings for players, and we've applied it at the we applied it at the high school, and we've applied it here at this tournament. And what the algorithm does is it, it's, in particular, it's going back to the June 2017 rating supplements, which is when super national results from last year would have hit 
players' rating supplements. Looking at all the rating supplements through the current rating supplement for this tournament in particular, the May tournament, I mean the, the May supplement and the April supplement for the, the high school nationals that were completed a couple weeks ago. And the first thing the algorithm does is it looks for did that player, did that player's peak rating in the rating supplement, not a peak post-tournament rating, did that player's rating in a rating supplement at any time exceed the threshold for that under section? Okay. So, and it could have been by one point. So, okay, we saw that we could make that work. So, okay, well, let's make it 30 points over the limit. Let's see what happens. And, yep, we can do that too. Well, let's take a look and see if the algorithm can detect a player whose rating was above the threshold in April and then drop below it in May so they could qualify for the tournament. Yeah, we could do that too. And they said, well, let's go back another month. Let's go March to May. Yes, we can do that too. And for this tournament here, there were 119 players whose rating exceeded at some time during, the, uh, during that, that almost a year's worth of rating supplements where the rating had gone over the threshold by at least one point. Okay, there were 79 who had exceeded by 30 points or more. Um, uh, there were 32 players whose rating had, from April to May, had been above and then dropped below. And there were 52 players whose ratings in, um, in, um, in March to May dropped from above the limit to below the limit. Now, does that mean that kid's cheating? No, it does not at all. However, it does flag someone's name and, and ratings history for further investigation. So that's what it did. We took those names, turned them over to the three-person group in accordance with the Scholastic Council regulation. I mean, the Scholastic regulations, which say it's the, executive, I mean, it's the director of events, it's the chief tournament director for the tournament, and it's the Scholastic representative to that tournament. And they then look at the detailed ratings history for that handful of players, literally. Because many, many of these you can just dismiss, right, you know, outright. Okay, the kid's rating went over by five points in one month and then dropped below, so you know, just throw that one off to the side. That's not an issue. But when you have a player, okay, from November of last year through March was as much as 200 points over the limit, and then now it's down under – that doesn't mean that, that doesn't necessarily mean a kid was cheating. Doesn't mean that at all. It could just mean it just is an indicator that that kid's playing strength is probably higher than what that rating supplement rating was in May, and that's the kind of things that the that the uh, that this three person committee would look at, uh, and then make some assessments for this particular tournament and for the high school tournament, you know, in that regard. And there were some players who got resectioned because of that. Uh, and then one of the things, the other things the algorithm does is it looks for multiple players on the same team where you see that drop. Mm -hmm. And there were some teams that we saw that. And so, you know, but yeah, but when you look at them, in the fact, the two teams that immediately come to my mind, both of them, the kids had gone over the limit by like five or ten points. So it really wasn't, you know, kind of an eye raiser about, well, yeah, they had a, you know, playing in an under 900 section, they had one kid rated, you know, 1100, another rated 1200, another rated 950, and they all got it underneath just in time. It, it wasn't like that at all for anything we saw at this tournament or the one at the high school. So, like I said, we're a learning organization, and we learn from uh, the events that transpired, and we're not looking for, quote, sandbagging. We're looking for ratings irregularities, irregularities that suggest we need to look closer at what's going on here and whether or not there is anything that's, you know, that's, that's not proper. Mm -hmm. uh, do we wish we had had something like that for the junior high? Yeah, maybe so. 
But like I said, we're learning. Yeah. And we're going to continue to learn from these types of things about, uh, you know, about how to about handle about how to handle them and so that we can have the discussions before the tournament about making decisions that may need to be made as opposed to oh gee it's in the fifth round and now somebody comes forward because I've been I've been running these national events and been involved with them for probably a dozen about about a dozen years now and it's usually in the fourth or fifth round is when somebody steps forward and says you know Sally Smith or Johnny Jones is rating in some system you know, in, in East Bulgaria hmm. is, you know, it's 3,400. So why is he even playing in the, in the K1 under 500 and unrated section? Right. You know, and then we go through this big rigmarole and try to find out what's going on. But I think we've got, you know, I mean, in, in the past, in, in the past five years, we've really started looking at other rating systems ratings. And we have data from the Northwest rating system, from the Chess Express rating system, from the Kansas rating system, and from FIDE. And that data is all screened when, when, when a player enters the tournament, in particular when a player enters as an unrated. And then I can say, no, he's not unrated. He's not played in the U.S. chess tournament, but he's got 147 games in the Northwest system. And his rating in the Northwest system is 1483. That's not unrated. you know. Or they've got... 57 games in the Chess Express system out of some games they played in Oklahoma or Mississippi or New York or somewhere else. And that pit is not unrated. So initially it was really a tool to separate out the unrateds from people who really have a legitimate rating. But, you know, and, and, it's, and that's why nowadays, I mean, their unrated sections used to be huge. Now they're very small, you know, few, sometimes fewer than 70 players because we're able to screen out a lot of those supposedly unrated players and force them to play into an undersection that is more of an indicator of their strength because the scholastic regulations are all about fair play. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got to work it to ensure fair play. So the new algorithm we've that, that we're working, this prototype, is evolving. I mean, it's, it's evolved in the last – from between the high schools and this tournament evolved. It changed. So that's – you know, that – process is ongoing we're going to continue to try to improve it and see what we learn out of this tournament to do that okay well, sorry for the long answer but you know no yeah and it's good and and again this was a subject that was debated in in some facebook forums and stuff like that and you know having been on the pittsburgh chess board uh i i got a first I, and i don't have a lot of board experience personally but i got a first-hand glimpse of how important it is to to follow protocol so i, I think I, the other important thing to recognize here is we're talking about minors. Right. And because we're talking about children that are under, you know, under under the age of whatever that happens to be defined for a minor in those particular states or in that part of the country, I think we have to be really really careful about what people are saying. Um because that that can have significant primary and secondary consequences on that child's life. Uh, in, in, in cases where that child may have had nothing to do with what have hap what happened uh, or if in fact did but to, to publicly uh, accuse or even pre present the perception that a youth player I mean th that kid is never going to want to play chess again and I have seen it many times where a player is accused of cheating was doing nothing, but I'm not playing chess anymore because, you know, people think I'm a cheater or people think I do this or people think I do that. And and we don't want – we want to do just the opposite. We want to turn people on to chess, right. not make them go running into the woods and hope I never see a chess set again. 
Okay. Carol, do you have anything to add? To- so I, th- I think in response to the, the subtext of the of the question that, you know, we're not doing anything or not happy with how we handled it, you know, U- U.S. chess has procedures to hear these kinds of um, complaints. Uh, at Atlanta itself, the tournament director made a ruling based on the available information that was presented during that tournament. I'm sure with the gift of time, New information may have come to light since then. So we're not even able to compare apples to apples when we're talking about what we might know now and what we knew then. And so I know there's a lot of armchair quarterbacking that that goes on. You know, we're we're not only committed to ensuring that players um, have fair play opportunities, but as an organization, you know, due process and following our own um, procedures for hearing um, complaints when they they hit our office, you know that that is paramount to making sure that everybody gets uh, a fair hearing. And um, as of yesterday, no complaint has been received by the U.S. Chess Office. So we're our hands are tied. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, which is surprising given given how much uh, talk there's been that no. You one... know, our, it, and our hands are tied to investigate a specific incident without. Um, you know, as, as our due process says, without the, the complaint being filed in accordance with our procedures that we have, but it doesn't mean we're not doing anything. Right. Like I, like I mentioned, this algorithm in detail. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I think we, we've said enough about it for, for the time being. And uh, if there's a complaint, then, you know, down the line, uh, there can be further discussion about it. Um, so I just have one more major topic. And then if anyone has a question, uh, we can do that. And then we'll let you guys shuffle off to your next meeting, which I'm sure you have no shortage of. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, and when we had uh, Dan Lucas on, um, the director of publications for U.S. Chess, I also talked with him a little bit about the overall health of U.S. Chess. But um, you guys obviously also are ex- extremely qualified to to talk about this. Um, it's an organization that is known to have had up, ups and downs over the years. It seems like chess is doing great, but I still wanted to hear uh, both of your perspective on on how it's doing generally at this moment. Yeah, I, th- I think we're in a very, very good position. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the executive director. You know, financially, um, our, our board, um, in particular, Alan Priest and Chuck Unruh, our um, treasurer, have, uh, you know, committed to overseeing our finances, both at the operational level. Chuck also chairs the LMA Trust and, and um so, you know, we've got very capable, good people. There were others before that who helped the organization um, reframe how it spent money, how it looked at its budgets and, and all. So I'm the beneficiary of that. And financially, I think we're in a very, very solid um, footing right now. Um, in, in terms of, you know, the, the state of the organization, um, you know, Mike, Talking about a learning or, or a learning organization, I think that's that's really true. And, and what I I translate that into is that we have a lot of opportunities, and you know th- whether that's programs that we may want to launch um, or ways to improve our internal practices and processes for doing things to um, upgrading our aging infrastructure. Um, all of those things are um, are are 
going to put us in a position that we will become a, a sustainable um, organization into the future. And, you know, they require investments of time and money, um, but we're in a, a good position to be able to do that so that we can grow the organization in the way that the board um, wants us to grow. So. Excellent. And so hiring someone whose specific job will be to focus on fundraising, I gather that's sort of a... a a symbol of the the health of the organization that you you guys are able to do that. Absolutely, and I you know I, I don't know the timing and all. We we have another position. It'll be a more program focused position that will likely come late in 2018, if not early 2019. Um, things are just constantly being reworked to meet our current needs, rather than just filling a position that's vacant from you know, a past life. So we, we, we continually evaluate what our, what our needs are to get us where we want to go. Okay. Um, and one last one is, uh, our guests always like to hear book recommendations. Often, of course, we have, uh, you know, grandmasters and super strong players who talk about, um, talk about, uh, what books have been most, um, you know, most influential in their chess development, but we don't necessarily need to, to stick to that topic. So do either of you, whether it's helped with uh, Mike with, with your chess um, or just general interest, have any recommendations that come to mind? Well, for- you know, I'm just rated 1100. So whoever's been writing the books I've been reading <laughs> ought to be shot. But, <laughs> but um, in, in the, honestly, the, I think the one book that influenced me the most was um was Bobby Fischer teaches chess, which mm-hmm. I saw you know when I was young, and I still have the original book and gave it you know to my kids and it's ripped in pieces and everywhere. But but uh, to me that was the that was sort of the you know the 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 book of the time for me as a as a young kid growing up. Yeah, like- but now you know, but now my you know my wife complains about my two walls full of you know, <laughs> about two thousand books. You've never read any of those. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, yes, I have. So. Yeah, much easier to buy them than to read them. Uh, yeah, Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess was also my first uh, chess book, and my, my chess coach growing up was uh, Steve Shutt, someone who's been very active in, uh, in USCF and yeah, very, Scholastic very, Chess. Yeah, he was a very important member of the Scholastic Council for many years. Yeah, so he's a great teacher and a great role model. So, you know, I joined the chess club at my school when I was in sixth grade and excitedly got a book. So I bring him this book, uh, Bobby Fisher teaches chess. And I say, Oh, I got this book, you know, have, have you seen this? Have you heard of this guy? So naturally shot is a, he, he's a big, he's a bit of a, uh, a troll as we call it nowadays, but you know, he likes, he's pretty sarcastic. So he looks at, he's like, he looks familiar. I think I might know who that is. So, so now I'm this like 12 year old kid who thinks Bobby Fisher's like an obscure chess player because he didn't just say, Oh yeah, that's the most famous chess player of all time. And I, I didn't know any better. So, um, took me a while to figure out Chet's uh, sense of humor. Uh, so what about you, Carol, whether it's organizational dynamics or, yeah. uh, learning she, about she crazy chess how players or what? Now, I, I think. do. I knew how the horse he moved before I <laughs> right. took the job. But uh, yeah. so, you know, given my, my background, you know, I do read a number of um, management books. Um, and there's a book by a Stanford business professor. I think his name is Sutton, Bob Sutton. Um, and the name of the book is The No A-Hole Rule. And, and it's really about organizations shouldn't tolerate bad behavior from anyone regardless of how good of a contributor they are because they they create um, toxicity in the environment where you're working and um, that that book has really um, 
resonated with me throughout my career. And, and, I, and I think, you know, many organizations have toxic components to it. And, and you know, I think we're, we're not um, immune to that. Yeah, and, I, think, I think U.S. Chess may have violated that rule at some <laughs> point in the and, past. And so that would be my recommendation for anybody who wants a, a good management book to read. <laughs> okay, excellent. Okay, any questions from anyone else or... Okay. Well, I think that that we are done here. I really appreciate your time, and I'm, I'm excited to see what, what happens with U.S. Chess in the coming years. Great. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, and we've got, you know, 2,300 young players, and they're slugging it out, and they've got four rounds left to go, and the, you know, the, I've always felt that the, the involvement of the parents is inversely proportional to the age of the kids. Mm-hmm. So I think the parents will you know, get much more involved in what's going on here in the next three rounds. And, you know, there'll be, you know, my kid lost because that kid's shoe was untied. I mean, right. There'll be, there'll be a, we'll, all these off the wall complaints we'll start getting, but uh, that's just part of the tournament life. It's just yeah. the way it is. I, I love nationals. I mean, to me, it's just seeing all these kids come together to use, to use their brains. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. So the, the competitive element is, a, it has a place, but it's, it, we we want to keep it at a high plane, but not too high of a plane. Um, so yeah, it sh- should be fun, and everyone's doing a great job running the tournament so far. So hopefully, no no drama or no unexpected drama right. in the last few rounds. Thanks for having us on. Okay, Thanks. thank you. The new Perpetual Chess theme music is courtesy of Geert Vandervelt. Special shout out to him. I also want to thank everyone who supports the podcast. That includes people who tell their friends about it, people who write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, and most of all, those who have donated to support the show. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Without the support of my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Chess partners, the show would not be possible. They are... Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Krizdua. I hope I did okay there, Andres, on your name. Alex Pejas, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Banastia, Jason Dunbar, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, Jen Shahadi, Jen Scream, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passy, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotello, Victor Vrenkul, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll be back next week with another great... Podcast Network.